0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, I am very excited to be here today because I've wanted to interview this man for so long. The intro's written down, the rest of it's a journey. John Barnes, MBA, I love that. A professional player and manager, often considered one of the greatest British footballers ever, which is very flattering. He's a commentator, composer, and has written two books. That's the intro out of the way. That's brilliant, that. How did you feel getting the MBA?
1: I felt honored. You know, because, of course, it's a recognition of, of what you've done. Um, and it's not just for football. It's what you've done outside of football because, you know, I did a lot of charity work and stuff. And every now and again, you know, people take that for granted. And I'm not saying that I've done any more, much more charity work than anybody else because there are people who do much more charity work than me who won't get an MBE. And I know it's a bit of a token thing whereby it's nice, but it does make you feel good.
0: Yeah. Um, how long did you
1: keep the secret? Because that's the, the big question I love asking over that. It depends who you tell. You have to be very choosy who you tell. So I could tell my wife, obviously my first wife, Susie. My mother came over, and they were only allowed three at the palace. So it was my mother, Susie, my first wife, and and, uh, Gemma, my daughter, who is now 29, because, of course, with four kids at the time, I had to pick and choose. Um, So, yeah, no, it was very easy. I didn't tell Charlie or anybody like that, no. It's an amazing thing, though, isn't it? Yeah, and, it's so, and it, but I tell you, the funniest thing about it was you have to go to the protocol meeting. So you go the day before, and you all stand up in Buckingham Palace in this room, and the captain or a colonel or somebody comes in and he tells you the protocol as to what you do with the Queen. You don't in, you don't initiate conversation; she'll initiate conversation. You respond, and of course, because there's a big queue of you, you don't know how long you're going to stay. You know, because she moves along the line, and as she talks to you, you shake her hand. She'll shake your hand, you put your hand out, and then she'll converse with you. And we're thinking, well, how long did you converse with her? What do you do? And the colonel just laughed when we said, how long do you stay talking to her? And he laughed and he went, you'll know. (laughs) Because what actually happens is when she's talking to her, she's holding your hand and she's talking to you, when she's finished, she pushes you. (laughs) I mean, she doesn't push you with two hands, she just push you over. But, you know, when you shake hands, if somebody wants to firmly push you away to say... Now is the time to go, you know. I think she gave me an extra extra, extra, firm push, but um, it was still special.
0: Here's an interesting point. You're a footballer, which we'll talk about. Um, you know about all the injuries and the problems with the legs and stuff. What about the Queen? Shaking hands every day of her life. She must have any hassle with her arms?
1: <laughs> well, she must be very strong. Um, and, of course... <laughs> Since since COVID, which wasn't around then, people are thinking about we shouldn't be shaking hands. But on matter of hand, she must have sh- 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 shaken. Shame. But of course, you know, she looks at um, her responsibility to her subjects. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter what people want to say, because people always talk about the royal family, particularly up where we live. Um, and of course, with the Harry and Meghan thing, talk about the royal family. However, this was an institution which is a hundred, hundreds of years old and therefore you have to understand what you're going into. Mm -hmm. Anybody who goes into it to say that I didn't know that's what it was going to be like, you know, they're lying. (laughs) They're lying. So um, they have to have some resolve. They have to have some backbone um, to really just conduct themselves in the way they could. I don't think I could. I don't think you could either, Pete, to be honest with you.
0: I think you're (laughs) right. Here's a piece of useless information. If you don't know, did you know that the Sultan of Brunei, who's the richest man in the world, uh, shakes hands with every single one of his subjects once a year?
1: Wow, I didn't yeah, know one, that.
0: It uh, takes a few days, but I've been over there and seen it happen.
1: Well, the Sultan of Brunei in the, would have been the 50s, would have shaken hands with my dad, because my dad went to Sandhurst. He was an army officer, and he went to Sandhurst with the Sultan of Brunei. Obviously, not the original one, but one of the Sultans of Brunei. So, uh, and I've been to Brunei, and um, it's a wonderful country, and I suppose with everything they have and how much they adore him, that he would do that. Because, you know, a lot of the monarchs um, worldwide, they either have, Ones that they adore, ones they don't. In Thailand, for example, they love yeah. the old monarch. Yeah. His son, not so much. <laughs> you know, so uh, depending on the character of the person, we determine how much mm. loyalty they have here.
0: With you growing up, uh, was your father who went to Sandhurst, was that a, a, a benefit for you or against you?
1: Oh, absolute benefit, because grew up in Jamaica until I was 13. He was a colonel in the Jama- Jamaican army, so he was very privileged. He was, a, you know, he been became the second in command. More importantly, my mother's family, my mother's family were very political. They started the first Jamaican government with Alexander Bustamante and Norman Manley, Michael Manley's father. And they broke away from that interestingly. And you know, when you talk about the way you've been conditioned to think, it has been subliminally in everybody as we grow older, um, and I remember growing up in Jamaica with, for example, three prime ministers at my dad's funeral. And when I was um, growing up in Jamaica as an eight, nine-year-old boy, we'll have you know the Secretary of State, we'll have prime ministers, we'll have people just coming to the house to chat about politics, which I just took for granted. I never thought, all oh, the prime minister's here. So I grew up in a very politically-oriented family. Now, my mother's father and his brother who started it broke away from the Jamaican government. Because they felt and started their own party, the Workers' Party, they started the first trade unions because they felt that the black elite, now that they've become independent, will discriminate against the black working classes. So as much as then it's a black country, it should be great for all black people. But they understand that bias and discrimination is not just about race. So I suppose that subliminally growing up, I I would have thought that anyway, which leads me to believe what I do now. Because, uh, as I said, and that's probably where my influences come from. My sporting influences come from my father. My discipline comes from my father because he was a colonel in the army. But in terms of anything, I may think from a moral, intellectual or political point of view, it comes from my mother's family.
0: We'll go back to that because it's it's fascinating. And this is one of the reasons I really want to talk to you today to talk about your books. But first of all, give us a potted history on who John, John Barnes is.
1: John Barnes is a young boy who grew up in Jamaica. Um, I'm no different to anybody else. I'm fortunate enough to be able to play football. Um, Growing up in Jamaica, I I played on the 16th when I was 11, so I I was always a good footballer, and I would always play football. Obviously, when my father then got sent to England as military attache, when I was 12 and a half coming up to 13 years old, I knew I was going to be in England for four years because it was just a four-year posting, which means that I'm going to be 17 years old then I'm gonna go back to Jamaica. Or I got offered a scholarship to go to Howard University, a football scholarship. I wasn't very academic, but I got offered a football scholarship. So that was gonna be me. Never dreamt of being a professional footballer because I knew my life determined that I'm 16, 15. I'm not gonna stay here by myself. I'm gonna go and live with my family and go to America as most Jamaicans do. And then six months before I was gonna go back, Watford, my first club, saw me playing just locally in, in, a, in a, for a local club, You know, no stadium or anything. It's called Sudbury Court said, come and train at Watford. They offer me a contract. So my family went back and left me, and this was all within a a four or five-month period when I fully expected to go back. Um, But what I've always done, always done, is I've always separated who I am with what I am. Meaning, what I am is John Barnes, footballer, played for England, superstar, people want to call me that, celebrity, prestige, privilege. That's what I am. Who I am is John Barnes, a normal person who's got to go to Tesco's and go and go to the pub and, act, and, and be a normal person. And I've always been that way, even when I was a 17, 18, 19 year old. And why I was like that was because I saw the way when I was 19 at Watford, when old Watford players who may have been 40 came back to the club, wanting tickets or wanted to come into the lounge or whatever, and the people were like, oh, look at these old guys coming back. They've had their time. And I thought, when my time's up, that could be me. Thankfully it's not, but I thought if it is, Fine. So I've never struggled with, with um, retirement because a lot of people who struggle with retirement, really, because they aren't loved anymore and they aren't idolized and they thought that the world has loved them so much because they loved them. Then six months later, they don't love them anymore. I never thought that ever since I was young. Because Graham Taylor said to me when I was really young, I had a bit of an issue with the press. Because um, when I played for Watford, the press were praising me. When I played for England, they were criticizing me. They loved me at Watford because, of course, we loved the underdog doing well. And Watford finished second in the league. We got to the cup finals. So this young John Barnes, it's great. When he plays for England, and we know the relationship England players had with the press back then, they were criticizing me. And Graham Taylor pulled me to the side and he says, you know when, after you play for Watford and so you score two goals, and in the next day in the newspaper, the press said that you're at the best in the world. He said, do you believe them? He said, if you believe that, believe them when they criticize you. So you can't have it both ways. And that's when I started to say, I'm not going to take what the media say about me positively or negatively at all. You know, you're pleasing Mm -hmm. teammates and your fans and your manager. So don't believe the hype is how I live my life.
0: Just stopping you there, it's interesting you say that. I've said over the years and I've interviewed so many people around the world that show business people like Sinatra, like Diana Ross, come out of retirement to be loved again. It isn't the money, it's to be loved.
1: Well, you know, growing up as a footballer in the 80s, we looked at them as, And that's what I thought Celebrities were Pop stars Actors Actresses You know They are the, they, they are the celebrities Footballers weren't celebrities Footballers were normal people From the from the community Who were still in the community Because we'd go to the pubs, you know And go to the bars And the clubs And fight And do what everyone else does Football changed After the Premier League Started in the mid-90s To put footballers On a pedestal Which sets them apart From their community So there's no footballer now Who's going to walk through town And go to the Red Lion <laughs> You know Whereas in our day You couldn't get them out of it yeah. So but I wasn't brought up with this celebrity culture. Secondly, I wasn't brought up as a human being in the celebrity culture. Because, as an example, my mother worked on radio and television in Jamaica. She's a famous radio and television presenter. And she would regularly have Bob Marley on her show. And um, her, her, her uncle, Odie Hill, managed Marvin Gaye. So when we were 13, Marvin Gaye came to our house, had dinner with us. I played football with Marvin Gaye in the garden. And I would never have thought of Marvin, let's have a picture. <laughs> because that's not what we do. Mm-hmm. When I coached the Jamaican national team, and we were, years ago, and we were training in the national stadium, you'd have Usain Bolt training around the track while we were on the pitch. But as you know, Usain Bolt is training around the track, you'd have the average Jamaican who just, you know, he's a, whatever he is, but he wants to come and run, and he can, and he's running around the track, not with Usain Bolt, because he won't catch him, but, he, and he doesn't come up to Usain and want autographs and stuff. We don't have that culture at all, so I'm not brought up with that celebrity culture.
0: Interesting, interesting. Now, racism within football growing up was the worst time ever, wasn't it?
1: <laughs> um, not for me. No? Not for me, because racism growing up was the worst time. Not necessarily with football, and unfortunately, we're trying to separate football from society. And once again, I have lots of lessons that I've learned from. I mentioned the lesson of 17 and, or 19, and the Watford player came back, and no one wanted to know him, and I thought that could be. I remember playing at, Holl- on, at Arsenal on a Saturday, and it happened to be Arsenal, because if, if I ever say about us playing at this stadium and got racially abused, all of those fans go, "Oh, you you saying? We're all racist. Look, Liverpool fans racially abused me when I played for Watford. This was just the way football was. But as we we're coming up Holloway Road, which he then got on the A1 to go to Watford, it's on a Saturday, 6 o'clock, shopping time. You had hundreds of people shopping. And some Arsenal fans, because we played against Arsenal, were throwing bananas at the coach with me and Luther, but I'm on a coach, drinking champagne, having a nice glass of wine. Sorry, drinking wine, having a nice steak. That's how we, 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 we had food on the, on the coach. Never felt threatened at all, and they're throwing bananas at me. And I thought, well, if I paid for Arsenal, as Michael Thomas did, and scored against us, they'll be cheering me. That's the first thing. But secondly, I'm thinking, well, okay, they're, they're racist. They're unconsciously biased. They're racist anyway. But how am I affected by that apart from it? Does it hurt my feelings? But what I did notice back then was, as there an and as I said, I didn't feel threatened because I'm privileged. I'm a footballer. So I didn't feel threatened, but as I looked into the crowd of hundreds of racist football fans, you have normal people walking up and down doing their shopping. You have normal black people doing shopping. And these black people were cowering in corners, scared, running for their lives, hiding, and no one says a word for them. And we're doing the same thing now. What we're doing is saying how terrible it is for footballers. What about how terrible it is in the inner cities? Education, access to social care, jobs, but no one talks about that. They just talk about how terrible it is because a black player is getting racially abused. And once again, you have to look at race, class, gender, because you have a lot of privileged black people who are in positions of power, but nothing changes for the black community. Now, when you talk about trickle-down economics not working, it's been proved not to work, meaning that when people say, let's get rich people at top lots of money, and it'll trickle down to us, that has proved not to work in hundreds of years. Trickle-down racial equality, trickle-down gender discrimination, trickle-down geographical discrimination doesn't work either. Because you have Leo Varadkar, who's a gay prime minister. You've had Theresa May, who's a female, you've got Obama, who's black, and nothing changes for the people down below. So we have to change it to say, let's work down below to create an environment and a platform down below for people to climb up the ladder themselves, rather than getting black gay people or women up the top, and they'll pull everybody else up.
0: Just let me ask you another question about football just before we go on to the books. you're now an ambassador for liverpool which is amazing you must be very flattered over that because i think it's great and it's it's a tremendous club uh, being a blue or red doesn't matter it's it's a, a job and a half mm. i um get very upset with football now and i'd love to know your take on this managers uh, and you've been a manager um years ago it took time you had to have time there is no time you can get sacked after
1: two matches Will it ever change or is it going to get even worse? I think the horse has bolted. I think the horse has bolted because we have empowered fans, players to be more important than the manager. And it's gone too far. It's gone too far. It was, first of all, from a player perspective, whereby you see players getting the manager the sack. But interestingly, if fans really want to know the solution to success, look at the clubs now. I'll add Liverpool into this equation. Because, of course, OK, have struggled now because of the injuries in the last five or six games. But look what in the last three years... Who's the most important person at Liverpool? Jurgen Klopp. Can any player, be it Mo Salah or anyone, undermine him? No. Guardiola, same. Man United. Ten Hag came, and while he had a battle with Ronaldo, he won that battle. And look at Man United now. Arsenal, Arteta was at Arsenal. Aubameyang was a bad influence on the team, and three, or four, three managers got the sack when he was there because the fans and the hierarchy backed him against the manager, but they didn't. They backed Arteta. And now look at Arsenal. So the manager has to be the most important, because unfortunately in football now, you can't sack players, but you can sack the manager. And once the players know that, they're more powerful. And this is the only industry that I know where the workers are more powerful than the manager. If I'm working at McDonald's as a manager, whoever makes the chips, I should be able to sack before I get sacked, but in football it's the other way around. And then fans all of a sudden feel more emboldened about their club and what has to happen, because they just feel that you know, success is gonna come easy. You look at what's happening at Everton, where And if you look at Everton, I'm just looking that Everton is made in the top 20 in the world for making money and for spending money. So they're having a go at the, at the owners, but they've spent money. They've spent money. So, you know, I think that the fans have to understand that things take time. And if it doesn't work at first, still stick with it until you can stick with it no longer. But unfortunately, they're too quick to jump ship. And they could have done it without Teta. I mean, Jürgen was 25 points off the top in his first year. Guardiola finished third with City in his first year. But the players have to see that you're in charge. And if the hierarchy and the fans back you, and if the fans have to choose between Mo and Jürgen, Kevin De Bruyne and Guardiola, any Arsenal player on Arteta, we know who they're going to choose. So therefore, the other players have to stand to attention. Wow. Two books. Uh, the autobiography came first? Yeah, it's really one book I counted as, because the second book, The Uncomfortable Truth About Racism, is my book. I wrote it. When I say I wrote it, I wrote it. All of it. The first book, yes, I wrote, but it was ghostwritten. So therefore, I spoke in a tape, and a, a journalist um, wrote it, and it is my words, but of course, he formulated it in a way that makes it sound very good, whereas this one is probably a bit more simple, because I was doing it. But I wanted this one to be about, my, I would not have it ghostwritten, because right? I want this book to be accessible to everybody. And if you read a lot of books, which are semi-intellectual, if you like, it is too complicated for the average person. It's even too complicated for me. I'm not saying that I'm I'm an intellect at all. But this is a very simple book in plain language that people can understand.
0: Simple as that. Was it hard to construct? Because there is so much to write about this subject.
1: Well, that's where the that's where the the, um, the publishers came in. I wrote. How many words? <laughs> well there
0: How many words were were the ones that you wrote? No, I wrote every word. No, but how how much did they have to
1: cut out? They never cut out anything. Oh, really? What they had to do was put it in the right order. Right. Because as I write, as I speak, I write like I speak. So if you speak to me, I'll just go off on a tangent for something else. Now, books can't be that way. So when I wrote... Yeah. it was all jumbled up. So they had to then formulate it into chapters and put different things in. So it's all my words, but it was all just jumbled up because it took me 10 years. I, was, I used to work in South Africa one week every month for, for five years. And I'm on a plane, I'll just be writing. And that's why it took me so long because I'm not a journalist. And as I'm writing, it doesn't really make sense. And in fact, I gave it to my daughter to edit first and f- before I even sent it to the publishers because it had to have a semblance of Understanding. If I just sent it to the orders to the author to the um, sorry the publishers in the way that it was, they would have said, "Hang on a second. They would have done it, but I wanted to send it to them in some kind of legible way, um, which which meant that they didn't have to. When I say change too much, I mean change the orders, not the words at all, but change the orders, change the chapters. That chapter has to go there. We're going to do that, um, and that is why it took a long time because I really wanted to be my words without anybody else's
0: the book is called uh, john barnes the uncomfortable truth about racism uh when the book first came out you were on every chat show around the world it was it was crazy did you expect that
1: no i didn't but the thing about it, without having been involved in football, which means that you are then involved in media, I understood that what would happen is that they would take certain snippets out of the book and depending on their agenda, depending on who they were from GMB to GB News, they would then want to have a, a chat and a narrative about something that I'd said. A little bit like if you read Harry's book, but then you listen to um, the interviews that he's given. Sometimes it doesn't correlate because, of course, the book has more context and, and, and more nuance rather than a 10-second snippet of him saying, I killed 25 Taliban. So I understood that that would happen, and that disappointed me quite often, because the book, why it's called the uncomfortable truth, is because the uncomfortable truth about racism is that, and I played on the word racism to try and sell more copies, because it's an inter, inter, intersectional book. It's not just about race; it's about gender, it's about class bias, it's about northern bias, northern-southern bias. As you know, as I said, I was going down to to, to Houston the other day, and I got off at Houston, and had to then walk to King's Cross. And as I'm walking into Cross, they have two workers. One was a foreman, one was a worker. And the worker must have done something wrong, so they were having this discussion. And the foreman said to the worker, that's a very northern attitude to have. And I knew it wasn't a compliment immediately, because I know that down south, some people see northerners as not as intelligent. So it's about bias and how it's come about and the solution to fighting the problem of bias. And the first thing to it is to accept it. So why is the uncomfortable truth? Is that because we all discriminate. But we assume that because I wouldn't racially abuse somebody, I'm not racist. I wouldn't rape a woman, I'm not sexist. I wouldn't beat up somebody who's gay, so I'm not homophobic. But most of us are somewhere along the line. And you have to add class into that as well. Because, and I've got it in here, one of the most discriminated against people are white working class people, who are forgotten about. Because they've just been told that they're lucky to be white, and they've got white privilege, so therefore just keep quiet. So it is a very intersectional book about, about bias.
0: I stopped doing my radio show my phone in which I've done for 45 years, which has been a chat show, five nights a week, four hours a night, because uh, my hands are now tied on what I could say. And I always use the expression, Black Lives Matter. From then, it's sort of changed. That is just a a thing to say. It has changed, hasn't it? And I don't still understand the word woke.
1: (laughs) Well, listen, what we have now with clickbait and... and with, with with things that people do, you're, we're very binary in the discussion. And it's a very nuanced conversation. Black Lives Matter, for me, just means Black Lives Mattering. I don't necessarily think I'll take the knee. But the problem you have is when people, can, people hijack um, a movement for their own end. For example, now they're saying Black Lives Matter is uh, a Marxist movement. If you can get into Marxism, it's not such a bad thing. But anyway, now, because they want to defund the police. Marxism is not about defunding police. Marxism... Why do they want to defund the police? No, they don't. They want to get rid of crime. How do you get rid of crime? Sort the poverty issue out. So once you get rid of poverty, there's less crime, they need to have less police. But of course, if you then just say, they want to get rid of the police, that's not something that I would would advocate. So people are just looking at little instances and and using it for their own good. Throwing statues in the river and, and stuff like that and changing road names and stuff like that. Because what people have to understand is that Whoever you're throwing in the river made this country what it was. And you can't retrospectively go back a hundred years and say, because he did this a hundred years ago that it's wrong and we have to, you know, take money from his family and throw his statue in the river. Because truth be told, a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, everybody wanted to do it. <laughs> if they had the chance. So don't judge what happened 200 years ago by today's standards. What you can do is understand the legacy of that and deal with it today. But I also
0: want those statues to stay to remind of us how cruel we could be and how wrong
1: we were sometimes. Well, of course. They can be there if you want that reminder. But for someone like Colton, for example, he built schools, hospitals, the amount of poor houses he actually built. He did a lot of great things for Bristol. Yes, he owned slaves, but he did a lot of great things for Bristol. So should he be rewarded? You have... um, him in the Congo, you know, uh, the King, King Leopold of the Congo and what he did in the Congo. And that was one of the worst atrocities in human history. But all of Belgium is built on the money that he did. So Belgium would not be Belgium without that. So what I'm saying is that, yes, let us be truth and let us understand what went on. But the answer is not to forget about him because that's not changing anything. Let's understand why it happened and the legacy of it and how we have become conditioned to think negatively about black people, gay people, women because of it but just by going back in time and throwing things away and changing names doesn't do anything.
0: I'm talking to John Barnes, and uh, I'm absolutely fascinated. I could it, It's just amazing. Here's a minefield of a question. I've been to South Africa in apartheid, and I've been to Rhodesia with apartheid. I went back to both countries, and I was terribly sad. First of all, I was offended and appalled... And I had no idea until I went there what apartheid was, and I was appalled. And nearly got thrown off uh, out of South Africa because so I was working uh, on tour. Mm. So it was great. But since apartheid changed in both countries, they've had big problems. Is there a, 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 a is there a, a
1: media? Is there something? Well, look once again with it: race, gender, class. We have to look at the effect that capitalism has had on. The majority of people, it doesn't matter whether, you know, there are black people in charge in South Africa, black people in Jamaica, we live in a capitalist society, which means that the minority have to benefit while the majority suffers. That's what it is. So, of course, South Africa is a very rich country. The Congo is even worse because the Congo should be the richest country in the world with the natural resources it had, but it isn't. So it's not, a, it's not a black and white situation because people thought after apartheid, everything's going to be great in South Africa. But if you look at what apartheid was based on, apartheid was based... Two things, apartheid was based on the treatment of the indigenous Australians by white Europeans. That's what apartheid was based on. Nazism, interestingly enough, was based, Liebenstrom it was called, which means filling the land with your people, was based on what the Americans did to the native Americans. And that's what the Germans wanted to do, to move native people out of their lands to fit with Aryans. Now the problem that the Nazis had, was that while for hundreds of years this was accepted, ignored, adopted by many European countries, why it wasn't accepted? Because when the Nazis did it, it's because of the people who were doing it too. They were doing it to white Europeans. Had Germany just done it in Namibia, which they had done before, you would not have had a world war. So this shows the unconscious bias everybody has towards, towards native people. So um, it doesn't surprise me, and we have to understand. I would come from. And from a black perspective, you also have to understand that there is no homogenous black unity. Africa doesn't exist. Nigeria doesn't exist. Nigeria should be 20 countries who were having their problems before. They don't identify with each other. And we feel like Wakanda. Once we get rid of white imperialism and white people, we'll all be great. No, we won't. Because, you know, we live in a world whereby people discriminate. Yes, it has to be. Me. And I always say, once we get rid of racism, sexism, homophobia and other discriminatory dynamics the majority of black people, gay people, women, and other people who are discriminated against will be exactly where they are. But they won't be there because they're black, because they're gay, because they're female, because they're travelers. They'll be there because everybody has an innate quality in whatever that means in today's world to wake up earlier, to work harder, but unfortunately, there are certain people who are discriminated against, even if they're willing to do that. So I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not thinking of a utopia or a, such an idealist that I think what we get with racism, is going to be great. Because if you want an example of why that doesn't work, because the dominant group, the dominant group in the world, who we all talk about ruling the world, why are there so many white working class people and homeless? If it's just as simple as, if you're white, you're privileged. It's much more than that, and that's what people have to understand. I'm
0: talking to John Barnes. We're now talking about the book, uh, The Uncomfortable Truth About Racism. W- with the interviews you did, were there any interviews you'd have to mention their names? Were there any interviews you were quite irritated by that maybe were trying to set you up? We or mention... Were they
1: all trying to set you up? <laughs> well, you know Piers Morgan, some of you in Piers that are running. And the problem is, of course, a lot of people don't want to do interviews like this. What they want to do is they want to get sound bites from you, depending on their agenda. So, for example, when I went on. Um, GMB the other day, the first thing they said, talk about the World Cup. Um, Oh, you know, what about the LGBTQ community in in Qatar, the, the discrimination there? You know, why not to talk about the World Cup? And I said, I completely support the LGBTQ community, completely, I'm completely against their laws, but I will not say that they don't have the right to hold the World Cup, because by that same token, how can we celebrate the Commonwealth Games? How was the Commonwealth built on rape, exploitation, and murder in Africa and all of the colonies? To the benefit of the metropole which is england solely and the atrocities that were committed and then we're coming together of Commonwealth games and friendship which is the right thing to do so therefore when we go to the world cup let us not and it was given 10 years ago so nothing was said until the day of the world cup and all of a sudden we're now criticizing so um and the Liam Neeson thing as well. And I spoke to Liam Neeson about it.
0: Which I was going to ask you about. Mm. Were you sorry what you said about that? Or do you still Not stand all. by? completely,
1: 100% and I'll tell you why. Because you need context around it. And of course when I'm on television you don't get context. But you just say Liam Neeson deserves a medal. Expl- just deserve explain a
0: medal. what it was about.
1: So Liam Neeson was talking about a film that he made, Revenge. So he's doing the PR for the film, Revenge. And the woman said to him, and, and if you listen, and even the question... Shows where he's coming from. The question was, has revenge played a negative part in your life? There's the question. Had it played a negative part in your life? So you know straight away he regrets it. And he says, yes, it did. And the interesting thing about it is that he started to talk about the troubles in Northern Ireland. Because being from Northern Ireland, and I spoke to Eamon Holmes about this, who knows him, and he says he would have known a lot of people, not necessarily family members, but maybe who know about the troubles and been involved with, and he thought, if I tell this story about the troubles, I can get myself in trouble. So he then started saying, you know, in Northern Ireland in the 70s, uh, no, I'll tell you another one. And he told the story of his cousin who was raped by a black guy. And he said, after she was raped by a black guy, he said, for one week, I hated black people. He said, I was going around, and of course he's an actor and he wants to, you know, big up the film and whatever. He says, for one week, I was going around Belfast looking for black people. If I found a black person, I would have killed them. I don't know many black people in Belfast in the 70s, so maybe we wouldn't find any, but anyway, it's a story's going on. That's what he said. Then he went on to say, after one week, I was disgusted with myself. I was horrified. I was introspective. I went to the priest to get help. I prayed, and I never thought about it again. But that all went out the window. Because no one said (laughs) that. All they heard was they wanted to kill a black person. (laughs) You know? So, so, how can anyone now, which is understandable, because for women of a certain age, and women, generally speaking, and even some men, if you're walking down a dark alley, and there are four black guys with hoodies coming towards you, you'd probably cross the road. (laughs) You know, if there are four white guys in suits, you probably wouldn't. But because you haven't racially abused them, you're not racist, but you still feel negatively towards them. And everybody feels away about any group that they've been conditioned to think about. So when all of a sudden people were saying about how terrible it was and he should never work again, they forgot, A, it was about has he played a negative part in his life, and B, for one week in his life and he never thought about it again and he hated himself for it. Now, if anybody has any thoughts, like Greg Clark with the FA. Greg Clark was the chairman of the FA, and he wanted to say two things. First of all, he wanted to say how great black players were. He said, they've brought so much to the game. They've been wonderful. We're so happy that there's 40% colored players in the game. That's the problem. He never said black, he said colored. Now, instead of them taking what he was saying about how great black colored players were, he said colored, so we got to sack him. Secondly, at his age, and at, at a lot of people's age, and, and you will know this, he started talking about gay players. He said, we would love a gay player to come out. We would support him. We we're with him all the way. We would love him to come out. We'd give him all the help he needs because nothing wrong with that. It's not his fault. It's a life choice he's made. Yeah. Now, obviously, it's not a life choice he's made, but of course, he doesn't understand that because he doesn't. It's a bit like the trans issue now, which I don't understand. You know? Nor so do I. So you Nor have to be careful I. what you say. Nor do I. But he was trying to be positive in his support for gay people. Yeah. So now they wanted him sacked. So this is why. I, I understand when people say nothing because if you say how you really feel because of the way you have been conditioned to think or use language, because the interesting one is coloured. Now they're not allowed to stay coloured. I came to England in 1976. I'm black. I came from Jamaica. Everybody in Jamaica is black. Everybody in Africa is black. I come to England. They got all the coloured people here, and I'm thinking, who are they talking about? So of course they call black people coloured hair. All of a sudden, that's changed. You can't call them coloured, call them black. But if you're used to calling them coloured, then you might have the slip of the tongue. And secondly, more important, this is why context is important, because officially, there are colored people. There are colored people. Stephen Pienaar played for Everton, he's colored. Benny McCarthy's colored because in South Africa, who are we to tell them they're wrong? Who are we in our superciliousness and our superiority to say you're wrong because you're black or you're mixed race, whatever? They have a group of colored people. If you went in South Africa, you know who, who they identify as colored, which is separate to black and white. So therefore, if Stephen Pienaar's hair, you're well within your right to say he's coloured. So so the whole idea of you can't say coloured mm.
0: is wrong. It's, it's interesting you say that because I was going to mention I met a beautiful group of Cape colors because that's what they were called and that's what they are that's their race yeah now regardless of whether we're going to say to them oh
1: no you're you you know you you don't know what you're talking about because we're superior to you so we're going to let you not this has been hundreds of years and we are no one to tell them what they are and brazil was the same the mixture of races some of the most beautiful people in the world because so forget whatever language you use as long as it's not detrimental and think of the context in which Mm -hmm. it's used but then going back to qatar i've had a People who then started to criticize Qatar and they've made great strides from a LGBTQ, which was much worse, say 20, 30 years ago, but also from a worker's rights. Because I work out there and I see the worker's rights. Now, of course, it's not where it should be, but it's better and it's getting better all the time. And we talk about worker's rights in Qatar. How many nurses are on strike here? How many post office? What about worker's rights here? For our workers. We have got many more people on strike because of conditions for our workers. And people say, well, it's different and different because in Qatar, you know, they're blah, blah, blah. said, why is it different? Why is it different? How many women are being abused here? Whereby, how many women are being abused? Oh, Ellen, no, they don't mention it. Regardless, how many women are being abused here? And what I've been told, and people say this to me, it's a false narrative. Meaning, that because it's enshrined in their law, it's worse than it is here. Yeah, because it's not enshrined in law here. I said, okay. My, wor- my wife works with um, some, some uh, uh, refuge for, for battered wives who have to... At the drop of a hat Take their children And flee And not let their husbands Know where they're going And they turn up With broken noses Broken ribs You tell that woman the broken nose And broken rib That it's a false narrative Tell her she's lucky That she's not in Qatar So the whole idea Is that because it's not enshrined in law It's better over here Workers rights And workers conditions here For so many workers Are terrible Why are we pointing The finger at Qatar (laughs) When we have to take care Of what's going on here as well
0: John It's been amazing I could talk to you forever Two things One What do you want people to take from this book?
1: I want people to look at themselves in the mirror. A journey of a thousand steps starts with the first step. So if you want to challenge bias, gender, race, whatever, yeah, the first thing you have to do and I start to talk at universities, Oxford, Cambridge, the first thing I say is that I'm an unconsciously, based on the way I've been conditioned, not racist because I'm black, but from a gender perspective, from a sexuality perspective, I am biased. And I'm working every day to change it because that's where I've been coming. Now, if I'm not going to start on the first step by admitting it, I'm starting on the second step. Which means that it's not me, it's somebody else. So, football. When a female referee walks onto the field, 99% of men, I don't care what they say, feel a man will be better. Maybe 1% of them shout something out and everybody points the finger at him, so they get out of the stadium... And then we think, that's good, we've got rid of him, everything is okay. But those other 99 feel the same way. And what we're doing now is we're teaching people how not to get caught by the language we use. But it's not about teaching people how not to get caught. It's about teaching people to change their perception and their perspectives of other people. And unless we can have an open and honest conversation, not like Liam Neeson tried to do, or like Greg Clark tried to do, and look what happens. So therefore, I don't blame people for keeping their mouths shut. And you would have been growing up in, a, in, a, in, a, in an institution whereby you know a lot of people would have been homophobic and they still are but they've not said anything they've not been caught and have they really changed?
0: That's the thing that bothers me about anything to do with racism, homophobia, anything, gender, whatever, is you can say about the police uh, and they need to ch- change, but if they are institutionalised within,
1: it's a big step to change. Well, they are institutionalised before they're going to the police. You don't go to the police and then become yeah, racist. Okay, yeah. You're going to the police and you have uh, racist yes. tendencies because most of society does. Because as a policeman, what is your job? As a policeman, your job is to say, who do you think is guilty? Who do you think is innocent? Now, before you're in the police, And you're walking down the road and you think that black guy looks guilty. But I'm not a policeman, I don't have to do anything about it. But you still think he's guilty. As a policeman, you have to act on it. So when you act on it, people say the police are racist. No. Most people think, if you look at it, and they've done studies, you look at it in a lineup, who do you think is guilty? People say the black guy. So, football, police, politics. Sounds to me like it's society.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) You know,
1: and until we challenge it holistically in society, what we'll do is look at every individual aspect of society and say, let's deal with it with the football. Everything else is okay, but then all of a sudden, oh, the police as well. Oh, all of a sudden, um, um, Fortune 500 companies. We have to tackle it holistically and get rid of, and what we have to do is stop promoting brilliant black people, women, gay people in positions of power and go, things have changed, look who we've got. We've got a gay prime minister, we've got a black president, we've got a female prime minister, so things are changing. Until we change it down below for the average person to be seen as equal and then you have many more black people, women, gay people getting into those positions. Nothing will change. All you do is create more elite and, 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 and privileged black people, gay people, females, but nothing will change that below.
0: Football, finish off. Where's it going, and do you
1: fear for it? I don't fear for football. No, because football is such a wonderful phenomenon that there will always be people who are going to put their money in football. Um, I think that it should be regulated, because, of course... We talk about how unfair it is, and of course, we've just seen today in Deloitte that there are 20 of the English clubs who are in the top, sorry, 10, 11, who are in the top 20 richest clubs in the world, two of the clubs who are in the relegation position. (laughs) So are you being rewarded for not doing well? Because that's the way football is in England. We complained about it when it was in Italy, when it wasn't regulated and all the best players were going to Italy. Maradona, Platini, to get paid. Now they're coming here, but we think it's okay. And, of course, the fans then feel that they have... uh, uh, right to talk about or to be involved with the running of their club clubs are private institutions in the old days as you can see pete i've lost a bit of weight but in the old days i went to mcdonald's every day i've kept mcdonald's afloat in birkenhead that doesn't give me a right to go to mcdonald's office and say this is what i want but football fans feel that it's our club owners have paid two billion pounds a billion pounds for the club this is what you have wanted, and you can't have it both ways. You can't have a businessman coming to your club and then telling him what to do, as much as you know you support them. So, what do you want? Do you want the club to be either locally owned or to be more involved with the fans? You're not going to get a multimillionaire from anywhere who's going to do that. That's how you become a multimillionaire. So, fans have to decide what they want. But I empathise with them because if that's what you want for your club, then all of a sudden, other people who are much more powerful from China, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, buys another club. They're going to be stronger than you. And are you willing to put up with that? No. You then say, well, let's hope that some Russian oligarch or someone from Qatar buys our club so we can be stronger than everybody else. So we have to decide. But I think if football was regulated, we'd have a much fairer system.
0: John Barnes, MB, thank you very much. Thank you. And if you enjoyed that, we've got some great podcasts. Why not just subscribe? It's free.